Hello and welcome to Sensei Podcast. This is Manos Brilakis discussing with leaders in the field of CTO and Complex PCI. Sensei means teacher or master in Japanese. The goal of the Sensei Podcast is to help you learn and improve in CTO and Complex PCI so that you can become the best that you can be and offer your patients the best possible results. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensei Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce Dr. Amir Kaki, who is the Director of Complex Coronary Interventions, as well as Mechanical Circulatory Support and ECMO at St. John's Hospital at Sensei Hill System, and also an Assistant Professor at the Weinstein University. Amir, thanks so much for joining us today. Super excited to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Manas. It's a pleasure to be here. Amir, we've know each other for a long time, and I know you've had a long career doing complex PCI, but I always ask people, how did you get into this? Did you always want to do complex? Was there something in your early days that influenced you? How did you get into this area? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And uh, looking back, uh, it wasn't necessarily complex PCI that inspired me. Uh, I did my interventional fellowship at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. I was uh, relatively young in my late 20s, and at that age, you're very impressionable. Um, there was a, a gentleman uh, that you may know uh, named Gary Rubin, who uh, was our uh, chairman and uh, was really uh, very innovative and uh, felt uh, he was always on the cutting edge of interventional cardiology. He uh, took his inspiration from, uh, from Andreas, from Dr. Grunzik, and uh, was always invoking him uh, during our cases. And um, I think the spirit of Dr. Grunzik uh, was th- directly passed to uh, to Dr. Rubin. And for those folks that had the chance to train and work with Dr. Rubin, you'll know that he was very influenced by Dr. Grunzik. And, um, and he subsequently have, have influenced us, he would tell us. He was the son of Andreas and we we're the grandchildren. And uh, what, what I really liked about him was uh, the innovation when he was doing the carotid work. He was one of the early pioneers doing PAD. And it wasn't necessarily complex PCI that, uh, that really kind of got me excited. It was It was more being an early adopter of technologies and procedures and techniques. And complex PCI, as you know, one, uh, being one of the pioneers, has really been uh, a field in evolution. And, you know, to really be good at it, you have to be able to adopt and be willing to learn and, you know, research all these new technologies that are available. So that's how kind of, I think, uh, what inspired me and kind of, that inspiration has kind of stayed into what I'm doing now. Perfect. And how did it go from the inspiration that you had from Dr. Rubin to actually um, learning the specifics and the techniques for doing um, the complex cases? Yeah, I, um, that's a good question. You know, when I was, I finished my fellowship, I worked for Dr. Rubin as his uh, fellow and I did an extra year of carotid and peripheral. And uh, then he uh, left that position and I subsequently went to Cornell. Uh, which was across the street for a more kind of academic job. Um, and my tenure there was quite short. Um, it was very different from the medicine that we practiced at Lenox Hill, which was, if you uh, think of the spectrum of interventional cardiology, we were probably on the aggressive end of the spectrum. Cornell was still, you know, uh, at the time, uh, more conservative. Um, and so that didn't really fit kind of my personality and goals. So I had an opportunity to go to Detroit. And I worked with uh, two people who really shaped my modern career now. One was Cindy Grimes, who we all know, who was the VP of our program, VP of Quality. And uh, our chairman was a guy named Ted Schreiber, who most of us know. 
And Ted's interest uh, was always um, mechanical support, complex PCI, really sick patients on the kind of in the deep end of the pool spectrum of acuity. And um, I really liked that and gravitated uh, towards those cases. And then him and I bonded and, uh, you know, we're going on our 11th year together. Uh, we've done combined together almost 1,200 uh, MCS cases. We make it a point to do every Impella case together. As a matter of fact, we did two yesterday. We have two scheduled tomorrow. So he's been kind of uh, my partner in crime. We've been in the trenches, and uh, he's been my biggest influence as it relates to mechanical circulatory support and complex PCI in the last decade. Perfect. And you know, there are a few programs that have two operators working together. Um, you know, Piedmont, they used to do that, and... Uh, other programs as well, but it's very not very common. So was it a personality click? Was it a common interest? How did it click you know, between you and Dr. Schreiber to be able to do these cases together at a high level? Yeah, well, uh, to be honest with you, in the beginning, it was uh, a re- the relationship. We needed each other. Um, the cases, for those of you, you know, you do a lot of these cases. Uh, the acuity is high. The stress level is extremely high. And that there's tremendous decisions that you have to make in, in every case, and it, it really diminishes the burden if you have someone who you trust, who has tremendous experience, and you have mutual respect. I'll give you an example. Yesterday was Dr. Schreiber's case, and uh, we were doing uh, an ECP, which is a nine French device, in a patient who's a, a vasculopath. And um, after the, the case, you know, uh, we both said to each other, you know, uh, it was really nice having you in this case. I would say, you know, maybe half of the cases he probably could do alone. I could have do it alone, but you can't predict these cases. And uh, it's been my observation every single time I've done a case with him or he's helped me or I've helped him. I've never regretted it. Uh, from a financial perspective, the way we do it is uh, if he boards the case, it's his patient, he bills, and I volunteer my time. And if it's my case, uh, he I bill and he volunteers his time. And over the past 10 or 11 years, it really evens out. It's never uh, really about the financial incentive. We're more concerned about the outcomes of the patient. And uh, that's worth more than, you know, any billing you could get from a procedure. So it is just, you know, and you, you may say that's an overkill for two really experienced operators to do all these cases. But I would uh, I would subject to you that uh, it's probably the best way. So if you look at our outcomes, it speaks for itself. Vascular access complications, extremely low, uh, low, low single digits. Our survivals are great in, in the high-risk PCI. Uh, so I think the data, the outcomes, and I personally think if I had the uh, the influence, and uh, obviously not everyone has that, the opportunity, but ideally if I'm going to have a high-risk PCI, I'd want, you know, if Manos is doing it, I know you're one of the best operators in the world, I would still want someone else who's very experienced in there with you. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. And um, I guess the... Part of that is that you also learned from early on. I didn't realize you had done a vascular uh, uh, peripheral training as well. Was that helpful in uh, you know doing the mechanical work and obviously the vascular access issues? Yeah, to be honest with you, if you retrospectively, if I look back, you know that year I did with Dr. Rubin, I was doing carotids and peripherals. And if you think of uh, what, what Rubin's practice was, was a very kind of boutique practice where he took care of uh, not, you know a lot of regular patients, but a lot of dignitaries, uh, a lot of uh, very affluent people from all over the world as an expert. But uh, it wasn't the carotids, actually. I learned a lot from the carotids um, that I still use today. But it was the vascular access experience. At that time, I had no idea how that would shape my career. And when I came to Detroit, I had that skill. 
and I leveraged that to get in on the cases with Dr. Schreiber. He was teaching me how to use these pumps, and I was helping him with the vascular access. And together, we've come up with a really good strategy and techniques we've shared with everyone over the past decade. So the Vascular Access Fellowship, uh, the Fast Vascular Peripheral Vascular Fellowship, has really been a bit of an impact. And at the time, not knowing it, probably shaped my career to where I'm doing now. And, you know, you published many of those techniques, you know, how to get the perfusion psilateral. Um, yeah. How did you come up with these techniques? Was it just the need doing those cases? Uh, was it the interaction with Dr. Schreiber? How did you um, invent all these uh, approaches? Yeah, again, um, when we were doing these cases, so a couple of things about our practice when uh, Dr. Schreiber and I started, uh, and I give, him, uh, I give him a lot of credit because I'm going back to 2012, and Pella was not uh, mainstream. We had a 2.5-liter device. It was 13 French. A lot of folks didn't understand large-bore vascular access. We didn't understand the utility of these technologies, how to best use them, and so forth. But he was an early adopter, and as such, I was fortunate to get on uh, that wave with him. Um, and what we realized is that uh, we were actually more experienced than most people in the world. And so we were coming up on challenges, and we would talk it out, and we figured out a lot of this stuff as we went. And uh, among us, I never had a very prolific uh, academic career like you and many others. And Schreiber and I were very busy in the trenches and didn't uh, really know how to write uh, papers. We didn't know how to publish. We weren't really involved in meetings and so forth. And it wasn't until um, I started uh, getting invited to talk specifically about access and, and Pella use that I realized, uh, you know, that this was really important information that people really were excited to hear about and didn't know about. And so then we uh, asked some uh, people to come help us with the writing piece and the publishing and, and getting the word out. And uh, that's how we did it. A lot of it was really, you know, they say invention uh, is the, the mother of necessity. And that's exactly exactly what happened. So we learned a lot on the fly. And, uh, you know, I'm very grateful to that experience, grateful to our patients, you know, that uh, allowed us, to, you know, to, to, to try to evolve the field to what it is now. And how do you prepare for those cases? These are obviously very complex patients in multiple ways. Do you have a specific routine? How do you prepare for each one of those? Oh, you know, it's um, to be honest with you, uh, on all these cases, we do the same thing. It's kind of become, you know, pretty kind of standard. Uh, Schreiber and I will get together, we'll review the films. He'll say, you know, what do you think? What do I think? And what, I, I, what I've taken uh, over the years is sometimes less is more. When I was younger, I was very eager. You know, you go to these talks, you see Berlakis do a retrograde, and he talks about, you know, complete revascularization. And then you, I sit there and tell Schreiber, we got to get every vessel and uh, he would say, no, let's get the proximal stuff. Let's, you know, mitigate complications. Let's be safe. And the older I get, uh, I'd like to think the wiser I get, uh, much more selective about what we do when we're in there. I'm very, very sensitive to time on the table, you know, and people may think I'm very impatient, which probably is a virtue that I unfortunately don't have as patients. But when we're on the table, I'm very, very sensitive every second, you know, every time there's an inefficiency or a delay. That's my biggest sensitivity because I think that the time on the table correlates with the complications and the risk. And so to answer your question, we plan these cases where our approach is extremely practical, large territories, proximal vessels. We leave a lot of branch vessels alone, distal vessels if we don't think they you know, contribute to a lot of myocardium. So it's much more strategic and thoughtful than it was when I was just very you know, dogmatic when I was younger. Hey, we got to fix everything. That's not the approach anymore for me. And then, do you get anxious or nervous during those cases? I mean, you're obviously very calm, but how do you feel when you do some of these complex cases? 
You know, um, I thought about that. I saw some of the questions that you sent over, and I thought that was one question that I, it was interesting because be, I was thinking about it. So I haven't gotten nervous about a case in a long time. The only time I get the the, the most nerve wracking thing for me is we get asked to do a lot of uh, live cases. And the most nervous thing is, is the patient going to show up that day? <laughs> but as far, as far as the actual procedures, you know, I tell people, you know, I've been through a lot of stuff in my, unfortunately, in my young career. Um, some of the easiest thing we do uh, during the day is actually the complex cases. So it's, it hasn't, uh, it doesn't really bother us or it doesn't stress me out or it doesn't provoke a lot of anxiety, shock patients, high risk, so forth. We're very comfortable. I know my limitations. Uh, when I do every case, my biggest, uh, my biggest thought all the time is complication mitigation or, you know, avoidance. And I have no problem, um, you know, stopping a case, referring a case out, you know, if I feel that I, the threshold of safety that I'm not comfortable with is being met. So I think safety for me is uh, a priority. And then when you, when, with that approach, I really don't have a lot of anxiety because, it's not, you know, a couple of times a year I'll say, hey, you know, this is out of my league. I can't do this. And I'll take the patient off the table. And the patients are actually very appreciative. I say, listen, I'm sorry I couldn't do this. I apologize. But uh, the risk started to outweigh the, the benefit at this point uh, for my level of skill. And if they need to be done, then, um, you know, we figure a place to send them to, to get it done. And then um, what happens when you have a complication, which, you know, it's inherent in those complex cases? How do you feel? How do you approach those? Yeah, so that's the thing about complicate. When I talk to you about, I try to avoid complications because even it uh, doesn't matter how many complications I have. Every time you have one, it just uh, it uh, causes. Uh, for me personally, I think it takes days off of my life um, because you leave uh, and you're still thinking about the patient. You keep you know replaying the scenario. You know what? You know what? What did we do wrong? What should we have done differently? There's a lot of you know. I for me personally. I have a lot of guilt associated with complications um, after the fact. Um, and it's kind of tough to deal with, I have to be honest with you. And then after a while, it really bears a lot of weight on you. And so um, that's why I'm very, very uh, avoidant of complications. Some people will say, well, you know, you should be prepared to expect complications in our line of business. I think there's definitely some truth to that. And that being said, every time you have one, a, a complication, particularly if it's major or catastrophic, you know, um, you know, I don't know if, if ever we'll be able to, a really good way to deal with it. I uh, unfortunately have a lot of guilt. I don't know how you feel after your procedures, although probably not the right emotion that we should have, but that's how I, I ultimately feel. No, absolutely. And, you know, it's it's human, I guess, to not feel to feel guilt and feel, not feel good about them. And that's the process of how can you bounce back? How can you learn from it so you can make the most for the next patients to come through? But another aspect that you have a tremendous experience as well is the implications of that in terms of um, credentialing and other things. As, you know, I've learned recently that you had a lot of situations where, you know, they were not really happening but may have been used in a way to serve some other means. So yes. and you've helped many other people in other podcasts that you've done about, you know, peer review. And that's a very sensitive topic for high-risk complex operators because obviously you're going to get more complications than the average operator. So yes. any insights you have on this? Because I know that you've done a lot of work to help other people along those lines. Yeah, so one thing I will tell you is um, that I'm very proud of and I'm also very proud of uh, Dr. Schreiber and our entire team is that we never uh, denied therapy to a patient on the premise uh, that it was risk prohibitive for us as operators. We did the best we could. 
Unfortunately, what happened to myself, Dr. Schreiber, uh, two other of my partners, Dr. Elder and Dr. Maham, four, four of us, we were victims of what is actually, which, uh, which is some, a phenomenon which I was never um, even familiar with until I went through it personally called Shampoo Review. There's a wonderful physician who's a neurologist in upstate New York who's dedicated a tremendous uh, amount of his career to researching and publishing this, and is probably the world authority, definitely in the United States. His name is Dr. Lawrence Huntoon. If you ever get a chance, uh, I think it's worthwhile for all of us to read his work. He's very passionate and committed to, to this space. But what happened, uh, at least in my uh, scenario, as the time permits, I'll be happy to share with you. Uh, but I was a victim of Shampoo Review, where uh, me and my colleagues were outspoken about the lack of resources and the mismanagement from administration that we felt compromised uh, the quality of care being delivered and the safety of our patients. Uh, we made our complaints in good faith and in, um, I think as a, a function of my naivete, I did not expect uh, any blowback. I thought, you know, they would say, hey, you know, these are passionate physicians about their patients and we need to meet their needs. Unfortunately, uh, rather than that approach, um, they took a different approach, and the approach was to conspire against the four physicians to make false claims against us and ultimately uh, remove us our, uh, from not only from our positions publicly via you know the newspaper and media outlets and such, but subsequently also to revoke our privileges as a, a form of retaliation for us speaking out. Um, uh, when they did take my privileges, I went through the due process, and the due process, depending on your institution or the bylaws, allows you a fair hearing. And uh, I went to the fair hearing um, and I found out very interesting things about the fair hearing. I mean, how many people listening to this podcast actually have read the bylaws at your institution? I would venture to say very few. Um, now, knowing what I've been through, it's, you know, it's very boring stuff, but you should uh, at some point have some type of grasp on what is the bylaws at your institution and everyone is fair game here, whether you say, hey, you know, well, Khaki's a wild guy, him and Schreiber, cowboys in private practice, that's never going to happen to me. I'm in the ivory tower of medicine, I'm an academic, I'm an employed physician. I think that is, uh, you're misguided if you believe that. This could happen to any one of the physicians. Um, unfortunately, I, 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 I hate to admit this, but oftentimes it's not only administrators, this is facilitated by our own colleagues for various reasons, it could be, you know, uh, for financial, it could be envy, it could be uh, professional reasons, but <clears throat> they can't do this to physicians without other physicians, uh, you know, being cooperative and complicit. In my particular case, I did go to the fair hearing. I was very fortunate after two days of a hearing that I won uh, unanimously, uh, five to zero, the jury of my peers aren't exactly intermetric cardiologists like yourself, Manos. They're appointed by the hospital. In my particular case, many of whom were employed by the hospital, so you could note the inherent conflict. The good thing, I was very fortunate that I had honest physicians uh, who were willing to hear out my case uh, with an open mind and non-biased, and they had integrity, and uh, they ruled in my favor uh, based on the evidence. Uh, none of these people who I had ever met before and never, uh, unfortunately, have never had the opportunity to thank in person since then. Uh, when I won um, in my fair hearing, uh, it went to the medical executive committee. The medical executive committee, you know, confirmed the reinstatement of my privileges without condition based on the evidence. And unfortunately, there's a governing body at our institution which is not made up of physicians for the first time in the history of the DMC in unprecedented fashion, denied 
the request of the Medical Executive Committee. Um, keep in mind when you have, go through this process, it's protected under peer review. So I was very, very fortunate that I uh, sued the, the institution and the judge, I had a Supreme Court jurist uh, in arbitration. She was a former Supreme Court ju uh, judge in Michigan who was a very smart arbiter. And I was very, very fortunate that she allowed that peer review in as evidence, which really uh, told the story. As a result, uh, just just to speed things up, you know, it was, uh, I was in this uh, legal battle for uh, almost two years. I'm very proud uh, to say that myself, uh, with the help of a very wonderful uh, legal team led by Deb Gordon, um, prevailed. I was fully exonerated. I was fully vindicated. I'm very proud to say that I'm the only interventional cardiologist that I'm aware of who got court-appointed reinstatement of my privileges. And uh, I continue to go serve my patients at this hospital uh, where they did this to me as a matter, you know, principle. And so I'm there and I'm taking care of my patients. The after effect of this is as recently as last night, uh, a young uh, interventional cardiologist, three years out of fellowship, called me being subjected to similar things, uh, similar uh, types of things. You know, I would say that probably maybe three dozen cardiologists uh, since this has happened to me that I've helped in one way or another. And the reason I think it's important, uh, Manos, uh, that we talk about this is that we, we need to increase awareness about, you know, the vulnerability that we have. And we really need to increase awareness uh, so that we could be educated about our rights and our process. Doctors, uh, in this particular scenario, I, felt, I found that this was totally you know, upends what I believed as an American. I was born and raised in this country. I'm a child of immigrants. It was always very, very uh, known to me that in this country, uh, we are all innocent until, until proven guilty. In this particular system, uh, physicians are actually not offered the same standard. You're guilty, actions are taken against you, and you're condemned until you're proven innocent. And uh, my case is an example of that. So I was, I was condemned. I was, uh, my privileges were revoked and I was only exonerated and vindicated after I proved my innocence. And so I think it's important for all of us to be aware of this. And if you're someone who's passionate about your patients, if you're someone who takes care of sick patients, uh, that deals with high risk patients that are complicated, you are a target, uh, for this, an easier target. We're all targets, but potentially, this could be manipulated, your outcomes, potential complications can be potentially used against you. You may listen to this and say, you know what, this guy's a little, you know, he might be a little paranoid because this happened to him. Uh, you know, I, I would have felt the same way before this happened to me, but this is real. And, um, you know, to substantiate uh, what I'm saying, just look around. I'm sure within your institution or within your career, you know of people who had this happened to. You don't really hear about it much, Manos, because of the following reasons, is that physicians, uh, by and large, lack uh, either the resources to fight back. Uh, it is very expensive. It is very time-consuming. The fortitude um, to fight a system which has unlimited resources, you know, and so you have to have tremendous faith, tremendous courage, fortitude, to uh, fight for what is right. And I think the easier path for me would have said, hey, you know what, I got beaten up, put my head down and move on. 
and uh, like most physicians do. But uh, I know myself, I know my personality. That was a hill I was prepared to die on. And uh, I, I was okay with fighting that fight and losing it. But I was not okay with uh, letting this happen to me without, you know, fighting, uh, going down swinging. And so that's what happened in my case. It's maybe not for everyone, but I think I wouldn't wish what I went through on any of my colleagues. Although, in retrospect, it's been a blessing in my life. I would, though, uh, wish that all of us would avoid such scenarios and we could potentially do that by educating ourselves and increasing awareness. No, absolutely. And I think we always talk about the cases, the complexity, how to learn to deal with cases, the patients, but sometimes we have to learn other skills. And this is a great example of having to learn you know, legal proceedings and participating in things that you don't necessarily train or have much knowledge for. So, And for people who listen to this, I think, you know, uh, so Amir has done a very nice podcast that summarizes all these issues very nicely. I would refer you to that. And again, learning applies to everything, and that's something very important, especially, again, for the complex interventionalist, because you do get exposed to more risk and more complications as well. Now, when it comes to teaching people, I know you've taught many people, again, all over the world on how to do these cases. Um, do you find some specific characteristics that you look for in people who want to learn from you that really attract you, make you want to teach them as much as possible? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question. I think a lot of people are, are eager eager to learn, uh, particularly when it's a novelty. But the people that I find that are the ones that are worth investing in are the people who want to learn just beyond the novelty. You know, every time we do a cool case, the fellows are very interested. You know, for example, I, you know, at the beginning of the year, everyone wants to learn ECMO. After, you know, three or four times, no one shows up to do the ECMO case. And the one guy who continues to show up or the one young lady who shows up, you see that they're actually dedicated and they're passionate about the pathology, about the procedure, about the technique and the management and so forth. So I don't really spend a lot of time in the beginning, um, you know, investing in, in people. It's uh, when I realize that they're really committed and then I will spend a lot of time with them and uh, teach them everything, you know, that I know oftentimes they become much better operators than myself. But it's the ones I notice that are really committed, who come when they don't have to come, who always show up, who are, you know, don't look for excuses not to do the cases. The cases are hard. They're labor-intensive. We require a lot of the, of the fellows after the case, before the case. And it's the ones that sustain all that, the ones I think that are, are worthy of the extra time and effort. And that's been my experience. Amir, what are you most proud of, the things, the many things you've achieved so far? You know, if you would have asked me that question um, prior to October 1st, 2018, I would have told you, um, as a young operator, I was, I'm very, very proud until this day that me and Ted Schreiber have treated more minorities, African Americans, with mechanical circulatory support than everyone in this country combined. So that's something that I was, I would, I'm very proud of to this day. I think, uh, you know, decreasing uh, the gap uh, in access to very advanced cardiovascular care, regardless of your race, your gender, your ability to pay, is something that I, I'm very proud of and committed to doing, uh, you know, God willing, the rest of my career. If you tell me what I'm most proud of uh, now, I have to say there's only so many patients that I could treat, and there's so many only patients that Ted and I can treat together. But uh, after my experience of, you know, exon full exoneration and the triumph of uh, a very hostile 
administration. I'm very proud that I fought that fight, uh, fought that fight, and I think that uh, that victory really has inspired a lot of uh, other colleagues uh, across the country. And I think that um, you know, I get I'm very blessed in the sense that I, you know, like you, uh, you've been all around the world. You get countless opportunities to speak and to lecture and to meet colleagues. Um, I got to tell my story for the first time uh, in San Diego, Paul Tierstein's meeting. And um, it was an audience of about 600 people, and it was kind of a talk on the humanity of medicine. And I gave uh, a presentation about what happened to me. That was the first time I've done that publicly. Um, and it was for an hour. And um, something that was very unique, it was a defining moment in my life, is at the end of that presentation, uh, I received a standing ovation and the standing ovation is something I'll never forget because as many lectures as I've given about really cool cases and life-saving procedures and techniques, uh, I, I never had that. I also uh, noticed that, um, that people were drawn, you know, there was a lot of emotion in the room, uh, myself included. And I realized after that, from the feedback that I got from many of the audience who I had never met, the impact that I had for them. And, uh, the lessons that I learned from my experience uh, were, were resonated with them. And one thing that uh, I've heard Bill Lombardi, he said this about a year prior to me giving that lecture. He was given a similar lecture on his own experience. And he said something that was very, very uh, interesting and fascinating that is actually true. And I'm very fortunate that I learned that at a young age. Uh, the sad part I see is a lot of older physicians realizing it late in their career and what he said was that the institution will never love you back. And what he meant by that is that, you know, we're not building equity with these institutions when we go there and we give our blood, our sweat, and our tears. We compromise our own health. We compromise our times with our families with the expectation or the notion that, you know, if I ever need something, you know, this institution uh, has my back. Uh he said that, and I, I realized that it resonated with me because I found that to be extremely true in my experience. And uh, my father is a physician. Uh, my parents are both immigrants. Uh, my grandparents, only one of four of my grandparents actually graduated high school. My father is Palestinian. My Palestinian grandparents migrated to Brazil for better lives. My maternal grandparents migrated to Nicaragua. And my father was the first person who had an advanced degree from our small village in the West Bank. And what I noticed is my father came to this country. He learned English. He went to a small a small town uh, and served his community. He still does till this day. And even at the end of his career in the hospital where he served for 40 years, a new administration comes in. Uh, they never know uh, his service. And towards the end of his career, he, he realized the same thing, you know, he served a small town hospital for over 40 years of his life and thinking, uh, maybe naively thinking that, you know, this is, he's building some sort of equity, uh, but he wasn't and he realized that late. And I'm glad I realized it early. I tell young people now all the time, the equity you have in this life is built at home. It's with your family. It's with your friends. It's not within the institutions that we go serve every day. And I think you're misguided if somehow you think that um, the sacrifices that you make um, will somehow be reciprocated by these um, big institutions. Uh, that's not been my case. And if you talk to Bill Lombardi, you talk to my father, you talk to some very accomplished people in the world, 
they had the same experience. And so I think that's important for us to talk about for young people who sacrifice some of the best years of their life, uh, you know, years of your children, formative years where you have your children, you have young marriages, and sometimes that are compromised and a lot of moments missed. That um, I tell the fellows, you know, your family is first, uh, this place comes second, you know. There's always going to be somebody here to take care of your patients, but there's not always going to be somebody at home to take care of your family. So that's an important message that I've learned, and I hope that, you know, we in the physician community used to be, you know, kind of a, a badge of honor. You know, I've spent so many hours in the hospital. I did the, this many years. I think that, you know, knowing what I know now, I think that's uh, that's naive and, and, and maybe even silly at this point. Absolutely. Family comes first. And as you say, because of the nature of the work we do, sometimes you spend so much time at work that you can miss out. And by the time you realize, it might be a little late. So, again, great reminder yes. for everyone. And that's not for complex. It's for everything, everything yes. that we do. Correct. Um, what excites you the most right now? What are you most excited for the coming future? You know, um, I'm very proud uh, and honored that I got selected as the uh, global uh, PI for the ECP pump. Uh, it's not only ECP. So e- Thank you so much. So ECP is a nine French uh, mechanical support device. It is totally different than the current Impella CP that we're used to using. Uh, Ted and I did a case yesterday and we had 5.5 liters of cardiac output, four and a half liters from the from the device that was delivering and one liter from the patient's native cardiac output in a left vein that was in a patient who had a reduced ejection fraction. We closed this uh, patient with an eight French angioseal. Critically, uh, severely critically stenosed left vein that was a huge rock of calcium. We did it with a, sh- we, we modified the left vein with a shock wave. We had an eight French device and nine French device, but closed with eight French angioseal. And what I'm, what I'm really excited about is that we're starting to, the technology is going to level the playing field uh, for access to a lot of people. So you don't have to be, you know, a khaki and Shriver. You don't have to be Berlacus. I think that someone with a lot less experience is going to be able to safely do procedures, which historically required a tremendous amount of experience. And so I think that's really exciting. It's shockwave coming, you know, uh, you know, the small impella pumps, the microcatheters you're seeing. You're able to see that we're breaking down barriers that of access to care uh, for patients. Because if you think about Amanos, if, say, there's a lot of patients who are not fortunate enough to maybe uh, come to your institution or people who could do these cases, and what ends up happening is if it can't be done, they get you know sent out to pasture, relegated to medical therapy. I think what's exciting now is with technology catching up to our needs, that uh, more operators are going to be able to do more complex cases safely. And uh, it'll be less cases for guys like me and you, but I'm okay with that. No, this is, and again, I mean, there will always be more and more complex cases. So I have no, no fear yeah. that we'll have enough cases. But you're right, <laughs> yeah. it would be nice to empower people with less resources or maybe at less, you know, less equipped centers to be able to do more complex cases and offer sure. benefit to patients where they need. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, when it comes to, Yourself, as you said, you take care of a lot of things going on, very, very busy, a lot of stress. Yeah. How do you keep yourself in a good shape to be able to do all this? Oh, yeah. I'm, I like to – I work out a lot. Um, my wife is a transplant cardiologist. Uh, she's um, really into health, which is really good uh, because she keeps our family in, in shape. Uh, I work out uh, every day before work. Um, 
so that's what I like to do in the mornings when my wife and kids are asleep. I, and before I start work, I get a workout in. Um, after work, I try to do something, uh, you know, as well. So we, uh, I spend a lot of time with my kids. Uh, our family is is uh, really into sports. Uh, I'm I like to play tennis. Um, so I got my my daughters are tennis players. They're swimmers. Uh, we ski as a family. And so we spend a lot of our weekends doing stuff uh, that is has to be something that's active. My kids go to school during the day. You know, obviously we use our brains all day, but I think it's just as important, um, you know, to use our bodies constantly, try to, you know, go to sleep early, eat healthy food, work out as much as possible. And uh, I think that that's the key. And, you know, when, when we're, you know, there's more and more data now scientifically with shows, you know, about, about working out, you know, and there's a great podcast, you know, uh, these guys from Stanford, the Huberman Lab. Uh, I, I recommend people listening to these guys. They're brilliant. But uh, as it relates to not only to myself, uh, I'm looking around at senior operators. A lot of them are plagued with orthopedic problems. I mean, you see these guys. Uh, they have very bad posture. They wore a lot of lead for a long time. They were consumed by our jobs. And uh, I feel bad for them, but they become debilitated. Their careers actually are shortened. Their quality of life is shortened. And so learning from that, I spend a, I do a lot of resistance training. I also advocate that to my elderly patients. I know historically we're taught the dogma is cardiovascular training. I think there's more and more science to suggest that cardiovascular training is not as important as we, we thought. I think you know anaerobic training is important, but we should be doing a lot more resistance training and muscle preservation for the elderly. Uh, you know this, Manos, when a, an elderly person falls and they're frail, they break a bone. Life expectancy usually is within one year, they're dead. And so I spend a lot of time talking to my older patients, you know, convincing them, you know, you have to lift some light weights, keep your muscles from atrophying. And those are the types of things that I uh, tell my patients. And at home, me and my wife and, and my kids were really into, uh, into sports. So that's what we do. And then do you have a favorite movie or a favorite book? I do have uh, my favorite movie is uh, Gladiator. I don't know if you remember that movie <laughs> with Maximus. That's, that's showed that in was, a plane. Yeah, <laughs> that's my favorite movie. Uh, uh, my favorite book. Um, it's it's, a, it's kind of maybe controversial, but I like uh, the autobi the autobiography of Malcolm X. Is probably one book that uh, I read every other year that has influenced some of. Uh, maybe some of my thinking. Wonderful. Well, I mean, again, that was a phenomenal, um, you know, a phenomenal introduction to your world of, you know, complex PCI and hemodynamic support and all the things that you've done. And uh, I mean, clearly an inspiring and also very helpful, I think, for many people, what you've been through can really help many people down the line. So if you had to summarize a couple of three, three, uh, tips or tricks for people who want to learn, complex PCI and they're at an early stage of their careers, what would you say are the two or three most important things you would advise them to do? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, do the things that I'm st I still continue to do. I think they apply to all of us, not only if you're a novice or you fancy yourself an expert. Uh, I take a lot of time out of uh, my professional uh, time to go to meetings, um, to go to courses, and I spend a lot of time, you know, watching things. Uh, if I can't watch it live, I, for example, I've seen you do a lot of CTOs uh, when uh, doing retrograde cases, which I don't do anymore. 
but uh, when I was into them, I would watch four or five of your cases and just keep running through the motion. So I think watching live cases, either live in real time or, you know, recorded cases is great. I think being, um, being at a meeting and speaking to your colleagues, uh, they share with you little nuances that you don't get when you're not, when you're in the audience, you know, you could ask, you know, very specific questions that I think are really important for proceduralists. So I think going to meetings, uh, watching stuff on YouTube and uh, reading and just staying up to date, you know, if you think of uh, Manos, you, you could speak to this, you know, you're a world-class operator that continues, you know, to push the envelope and teaching all of us. With the stuff that you're teaching, you know, the, if I look at, go look at some of the stuff that you taught 10 years ago compared to five years ago compared to today, it's a kind of constant evolution. So if I was the interventional cardiologist and doing the same stuff I did when, you know, in 2013 when I graduated fellowship or 2012, it's much different than what I'm doing today. And so what I would say to everyone is that, you know, this is, we're very blessed to be in a field that's very exciting, that's constantly evolving, is, you know, I know we get very busy, but take time out of your day, uh, out of your week and your schedule to go to meetings and try to stay at the forefront because it is a very rapidly evolving field. But you just told us, spend time with your family. Are you telling us to go? <laughs> I guess I don't do it all, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. No, this but. is perfect. And you're right, it's a balance, and it does take a lot of juggling and many, many roles, but it's important yeah. to not lose sight of everything. So <laughs> That's right. Well, I got to say thank you, Manos. I've been a big fan of yours since I was a, a young fellow and continue to be a big fan of yours. I'm also inspired uh, by how much you're able to do within a within the time that we're given. So it seems like you're, you do a lot. I don't know how you do it, but God bless you. Congratulations on uh, the podcast and all your contributions to medicine. We, uh, we collectively are very appreciative. Thanks again. Thanks, Amir. Thanks for everything. Thank you for listening to the Sensei Podcast. 